Welcome to the virtual seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. These semi-monthly seminars are a regular gathering of faculty, students, clinicians, and others interested in the intersections of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. For more information and to register, go to tmc.divinity.duke.edu slash seminar. It is a, it's a delight uh, to have with us today um, Dr. Katie Butler, who trained in surgery and critical care at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School, where she then joined the faculty and practiced surgery until she left clinical practice in 2016 to homeschool her kids. Dr. Butler now writes regularly for DesiringGod.org and the Gospel Coalition, on topics intersecting faith, medicine, and shepherding children in the gospel. She's the author of Between Life and Death, A Gospel-Centered Guide to End-of-Life Medical Care, published by Crossway in 2019, and Glimmers of Grace, which I've asked her to hold on. Oh, good, she has both of them here. A Doctor's Reflections on Faith, Suffering, and the Goodness of God. Um, I will say that I had the privilege of reading Glimmers of Grace before it was published, and and I'll read what I wrote about it. Uh, in the heart-rending theater of trauma medicine, Dr. Butler discovers parables and signs pointing to the God who loves, suffers, and heals. This book is for all who will suffer injury, illness, and death, including their clinicians. May we have ears to hear and eyes to see. So I recommend that to you guys. Um, and today, Dr. Butler, Butler is going to speak to us with the title, Shepherding Patients and Families Through End-of-Life dilemmas. Dr. Butler, great to have you with us. All right, thank you so much for that gracious introduction. And I'm honored to be here. And I'm actually just so encouraged to, to see the efforts with the fellowship and to see that there are so many who are viewing medicine as ministry and seeking to live out our call as disciples, seeking to love one another through healing and through care of others. So it's, it's an absolute privilege uh, to join you this morning. Um, as Dr. Curlin so graciously mentioned, uh, the topic today is shepherding patients and families through end-of-life medical care through a gospel-centered perspective. And this is a topic that I'm going to be framing it for those of us who are healthcare professionals who are walking alongside patients and their families. But my hope is actually that the content of this talk will help you no matter your vocation and no matter your season in life. Because the truth is, as intensive care medicine becomes um, more and more complicated, more and more advanced, all of us are going to be facing questions for ourselves and also for our loved ones, trying to guide spouses, parents, grandparents, siblings through some really hard questions of whether or not to accept aggressive measures at the end of life and what our faith says about this and how it informs us. So while I'll be talking a lot about how to guide patients in the clinical realm, I hope that actually the content here will be helpful regardless of the season that you're in. And as Dr. Curlin mentioned, my background is in trauma surgery and surgical critical care, a field that I loved because I felt it was such a privilege to walk alongside patients and their families 
in the most dire circumstances, when they were vulnerable, when they were scared, when there was threat to life, and to use the technologies that God's given us to help usher them back to health and bring them home to their families. It was the success stories that drew me in. My first introduction to the field was as a fourth year medical student on a pediatric surgery sub-I. And my first encounter was with a little two-year-old girl who'd been abused by her mother, had a fractured pancreas. And when I first met her, she was in the pediatric ICU with her limbs blown up with edema, her eyes swollen shut on a ventilator in distributive shock. And I was so touched to see how the intensivists and the ICU nurses and the fellows just stood vigil at this little girl's bedside to keep her alive until the pediatric surgeons could take her to the operating room and repair her pancreas. And it was a marvel to me to see that two weeks later, I glimpsed her running down the hallway using her IV pole as a scooter, just remarkably different and well, all thanks to the technology and the discernment and skill of the physicians who looked after her. And so we see this, we see people coming in after car accidents or assault or necrotizing pancreatitis or all the array of very severe acute illnesses. And ICU care can help us to bring people home to their families in unprecedented levels in history. Uh, over the past 20 years, ICU care has reduced the mortality by 50% for conditions like COPD, acute myocardial infarction and stroke. And the overall mortality from ICU care has actually diminished over time as well by about 35% in the last 20 years. So ICU technology has a tremendous potential for good and for healing. What I also observed, however, and what those of you who are familiar with ICU care also may have noticed, is that while it has this tremendous potential for good, the measures that we use can also prolong death and inflict significant suffering if we use them without discernment and if we use them at the end of life when our treatments for underlying conditions run out. One fifth of people who survive an ICU stay go on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. This is a frequency comparable to that suffered by soldiers who served in the Gulf War. Cancer patients who die in the intensive care unit suffer more distress than those who spend their final days at home. And all of our measures have side effects. We know this as clinicians, but in terms of ICU care, 20% of hospital acquired infections occur in ICUs because we're constantly using lines, because the ventilator circuit increases your risk of pneumonia, because we are constantly using urinary catheters in place so we can monitor um, urine production. And so, our, our measures, while they have a great potential to bring people home, if we don't use them carefully, we can really do harm with them. And additionally, in this hotbed of complexity and suffering, ICU care can thrust families into some agonizing dilemmas of having to determine whether or not to accept intensive measures for a dying loved one. And what I saw over and over was that people appropriately would lean into their faith to try to help decipher what to do. But the terminology is so foreign and unfamiliar. And these situations of having to make decisions for loved ones who are ill are so emotionally charged. People are grieving, people are scared, people might be angry and resentful given their past histories with a loved one, that they really struggle to connect the truths that they proclaim at church every Sunday with the reality of a loved one fading into a hospital mattress. To give you an idea of the kind of dilemmas I'm talking about, please let me share with you a patient for whom I cared during my own practice. 
I've changed a lot of the details here, but the conversations are accurate. And obviously these are stock photos. But I cared for a gentleman who was an octogenarian who was suffering from the end stage effects of multiple diseases for which we had no further treatment options. Uh, he was already suffering multiple degrees of organ dysfunction before he came into the hospital, before I met him. And over the last year, he had become so debilitated from his failing health that the activities that once infused his days with joy, including reading the Bible, which he turned to so often for solace, became nearly impossible for him. He developed a high-grade cancer that required surgery, did not want to undergo surgery, but did at the urging of his wife, who just longed for more time with him. But he made her promise him that if he were to decline postoperatively, she not consent to him going back on a ventilator. He had been on a ventilator for a long period of time in the past, found the suffering unbearable. And at this stage in his life, when he was already debilitated and already knew that death was looming just down the pathway, he did not want to spend his last days on a machine again. And he told her, his words to her were, when the Lord calls me home, just let me go. Sure enough, post-operatively, he developed an aspiration pneumonia that progressed to the point of suspected ARDS. We spoke with his wife and while she was grieved and scared, she'd had enough conversations with him to know what he would answer. And that was that he would not consent to having an endotracheal tube and a ventilator words to us were, he just wants to go home to Jesus when he calls him. After a long discussion with her and looking at his advanced directive, which he'd filled out beforehand and conferring with his primary care specialist, we then transitioned to comfort measures. And when I left that evening, she was by his side, holding his hand, speaking to him softly and said to me, I'm really sad and I don't want to lose him, but I know that he'll be with the Lord. Around midnight that evening, their son from whom they had been estranged for many years came into the ICU absolutely furious. He stormed into the room. He threatened to call the police if our staff did not place his father back on a ventilator. And in the midst of his anger and his anguish, he cited his father's faith as the rationale for why we should continue on with ventilator support. He said he's a God-fearing man who went to church every Sunday and he would not be okay with this. This situation, which is heart-wrenching and which stirs up so much grief for loved ones is one that unfortunately we see commonly. How do we reconcile these responses? What you see is that both the wife and the son drew from biblical ideas. The wife leaned into her confidence that her husband was saved through Christ, that as an image bearer of God, he had dignity and the right to indicate what was too much suffering for him. And she accepted God's sovereignty over her husband's life. The son also though, drew from the biblical principle of sanctity of life and the conviction that the Bible commands us to protect life. They're both drawing from their faith, yet they reached diametrically opposed conclusions. And the truth is that this is becoming more and more common, this kind of confusion and heartache when we're dealing with end of life scenarios as the landscape of death and dying has shifted dramatically in the last 100 years. 100 years ago, 86% of people died at home. They died in the spaces that helped to shape their lives. Family members were present, pastors were there to provide spiritual care and the technical 
and physical realities of dying reflected its spiritual significance, meaning for those of us who know Christ, it's a transition to be with the Lord. Today, the majority of people in America still wish for this. They still wish to spend their last days at home. But the truth is that only about one third of us actually do. Most of us spend our final days in hospitals, nursing homes, and rehabilitation facilities. And 25% of people over the age of 65 years dies in an intensive care unit, far removed from the things that help to shape our lives. What this shift does is places a tremendous burden on those we love to make decisions on our behalf. Up to 75% of us can't vouch for ourselves at the end of life, either because we're on a ventilator, because our illness has made us encephalopathic and so we can't speak, because the medications we're receiving obtund us. And as a result, the burden of decision-making then falls to our loved ones. But the problem is that only one third of people in America has an advanced directive. So in the majority of cases, loved ones are making this decision without a compass, without any sense for what their family member would want, for, uh, without any sense of what is the right thing to do. And the toll is remarkably heavy on people. Studies show that surrogate decision makers whose loved ones die in the ICU suffer high rates of depression, complicated grief, anxiety, and up to PTSD for even a year afterward as they struggle and wrestle with these kinds of decisions. For those of us who follow Christ, these decisions are also tied up in our faith. You might have heard some of these questions actually voiced if you've ever walked with people through end-of-life care. They might ask, if I withdraw a ventilator, am I killing my loved one? Is it wrong for me to withdraw care? Does being a Christian mean I have to do everything? Oftentimes, we think that sanctity of life means that we have to do everything at all costs. Will God perform a miracle if I keep everything going? I've had patients say, please, you have to keep doing everything. You have to keep my loved one on the ventilator, even though I know there's no hope because I'm praying for a miracle. And overall, the question is, how does my faith guide me in this scenario? What does the Bible say? There's no mention of CPR or ventilators in any of scripture. These questions matter. First of all, they matter to us as healthcare professionals because as those of us trying to love our neighbors as ourselves, which includes our patients and their families, we should matter, we should be, have concern for the questions that are keeping them up to wakefulness at night. But another reason is that the clinical impact of these questions is very real. We found through research that those with high religious coping are more likely to pursue aggressive measures at the end of life, less likely to receive hospice services, and more likely to die in an intensive care unit. And so the spiritual questions that our patients and families are struggling with have a very real impact on their clinical care. And so as physicians and nurses, we should be concerned and willing to engage with these kinds of questions. What we find though, is that in general, we do a very poor job of listening and addressing the spiritual concerns of our patients and families. And one study, and this is a study Dr. Curlin is familiar with because he was involved in the paper, of, eight of one study of family meetings done to try to help determine the course of action at the end of life for patients. 80% of surrogate decision makers cited faith as important to them. But discussions with doctors about end of life care touched upon spirituality in only one fifth of cases. During these discussions, a majority of loved ones actually raised spiritual questions but physicians rarely inquired further. 
they would respond with a platitude, they'd offer a word of empathy, maybe they would refer to chaplaincy, but there was no inquiry. There was no asking, can you explain more about what you mean? What is your understanding of this? There was no engagement. This is in line with other research that sh that's shown that healthcare professionals in general cite discomfort with an inadequate training for spiritual discussions. We don't feel comfortable discussing it. We don't feel comfortable going there. Some say that it's outside of their scope of practice. Others that it's best kept to the purview of chaplaincy. And indeed, we should be involving chaplaincy early in these kinds of dilemmas. But the problem is we don't. Studies have shown that we underutilize chaplaincy. In another study of terminally ill cancer patients, 85% expressed spiritual concerns, but only 1% reported that their doctors had even referred them to a chaplain. This mirrors other data showing that chaplaincy is usually not consulted until the last day or two of life when patients are on ventilators or like I said, obtunded and unable to actually communicate with the chaplain at the bedside. Our patients and their families deserve better. Rather than stranding them with questions when they are already struggling with the weight of these decisions and how it all fits together, we need to be inquiring further, exploring how faith influences their decision-making and offering compassionate guidance. The first step in doing this and being able to come alongside patients and their families through these end-of-life decisions is first to tease out and understand for ourselves, what does the Bible say about all this? Okay, so what I'm gonna be doing for the next few slides is unpacking scripture and showing what it actually teaches us and what are some guiding principles we can use so that when families, loved ones, even our own loved ones are wrestling with these kinds of questions, how can we give them some peace and discernment? So here we go, the four basic principles applicable to end-of-life care. Sanctity of moral life, God's authority over life and death, mercy and compassion, and our hope in Christ, which encompasses all of them. And what I would like to say too, is that these principles should be considered dynamic. What happens very often is that people will cleave to one of them without considering the overall narrative arc of the Bible showing that we are fallen in sin, but redeemed and saved through Christ. And so, for example, they'll cling to sanctity of mortal life and say, we need to do everything at all cost. Or they'll go the opposite and say, well, God is in control anyway, so I don't want to accept anything. Even if it can bring about my recovery, I'm just going to go whenever he takes me. And so a, a more nuanced and measured approach that considers all of these principles together is probably the best way to make sure we're being honoring and God honoring in our approach to end of life care. So the first principle is that mortal life is sacred. As beings created in God's image from Genesis 126, we each possess a revocable value. Stewardship of God's creation requires special concern for human life, right? We are not our own, but we're bought with a price, namely the precious blood of Jesus, and we're to steward our lives for God's glory. The Lord entrusts us with life to steward and commands us to cherish it through the commandment, you shall not murder, Moses up on Mount Sinai. The sanctity of mortal life mandates that we advocate for the unborn and safeguard against physician-assisted suicide. 
And when struggling with an array of decisions about life supporting measures, out of a concern for life, we should consider treatments with the potential to cure, those that promise to bring patients back home. The next principle, I find patients will often feel like it's contradictory to the first or hold intention to the first. It's not, but we need to really carefully consider it in, con in the context of all the others to understand that it's not. <laughs> and that's that although we are called to protect life and that life is sacred, God also has authority over our life and death. He directs us to honor the life he has created, but he also reminds us through scripture of its fleeting nature. We read in Isaiah chapter 40 that like the grass of the field, we are here today, gone tomorrow and dependent upon the will of the Lord throughout. From Paul's letter to the Romans, we read that death persists in this earthly kingdom as the wages of our sin. And until Christ returns, it will overtake us all. Death comes to all of us. And so the sanctity of mortal life doesn't refute the inevitability of death and God's work through an authority over it. And it's important to recognize this because when we blind ourselves to our own mortality, we can actually dismiss the power of God's grace in our lives through Christ's resurrection. And we can disregard the truth that God works through all things from Romans 8, 28, all things, not just the good things, but all things, even our death for the good of those who love him. So God has authority over our lives and, and our death. Our times are in his hands and he can work even through our death for good. The third is mercy and compassion. The second greatest commandment as Jesus tells us is to love our neighbors as ourselves. As Christians reflecting upon God's tremendous grace toward us through Christ, we're to extend mercy to the downtrodden and afflicted. From John 13, we're to love one another as Christ loved us. Micah, the prophet tells us to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. And when it comes to mercy and compassion in the ICU, this means that we need to have concern for the suffering that our treatments inflict. Mercy does not justify active euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide, as I said before, but it does guide us away from aggressive, painful interventions if such measures are futile. If we cannot provide cure, then we should really have concern to make sure that the treatments we're giving and the interventions we're giving are not causing more harm. And this matters because ICU measures do cause suffering. I mentioned earlier in the talk that there's a high rate of PTSD among people who have a long ICU stay. We also see that there's a high rate of depression from those who survive an ICU stay because of the disability that's incurred by being bedbound, potentially having um, muscular blockers on board that cause weakness and paralysis there afterwards, uh, from not being able to engage in the things that they love, from all the complications they incur, and the experience itself of being tethered to a bed unable to speak with a tube down your throat it really inflicts trauma and anguish upon people. In particular, the inability to communicate is found to be very distressing for people in the midst of an ICU stay. And if we can bring people home, this is worth it. But if not, if we're looking at multiple end-stage diseases for which we have no treatment, then we risk prolonging death and worsening suffering needlessly. So we need to be careful. Loving our neighbors also means viewing them as unique image bearers of God, aiming to give them a voice when disease silences them and acknowledging that there are differences in suffering narratives. This is important to impress upon families because oftentimes when they're making these decisions, they'll be tempted to 
declare what they would want if they were in their loved one's position or what they want because they don't want to say goodbye to a loved one or they, we need to try to help people understand that it is a very loving thing and a compassionate thing to consider the person in the bed who's unable to vouch for him or herself. Think about how that person is a unique image bearer of God with a unique set of values and experiences and a unique temperament and say, what would this, the answer be if he or she could speak? Let me think and dwell upon who this person is and show love of neighbor by trying to give that person a voice when he or she is silenced. The last is our hope in Christ, which buoys us through the storm. So vast is God's love for us that in Christ, nothing, not even death, can pry us from him. Christ has relinquished us from the permanence of death. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. It says, death, where is your sting? And we savor through Christ, the promise of the resurrection of the body and the hope of eternal union with God. And so what the gospel does and what our hope in Christ does as we're enduring these dark moments is it transforms our view of dying. So even as death is the enemy and it is the wages of our sin and the realities of it are stark and cruel and difficult, we need not fear it at all costs. The gospel transforms our view of dying and chases away our fear because although we die, we are alive in Christ. And one of my absolute favorite verses is from Romans 8, 38 to 39, is that nothing, neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So while these dilemmas can burden us. In Christ, we have hope, even in the face of despair. So piecing this together, looking at biblical principles of end-of-life care, sanctity of mortal life drives us to consider treatments that cure, that have the potential to bring about full recovery. However, God, the fact that God has authority over life and death means we need to also accept the reality of death, that it is inevitable and will come to all of us until Christ returns. Then we have mercy and compassion prompts us to alleviate suffering when possible and also aim to give our patients their voice. And then superseding all is our hope in Christ, which helps to carry us through these dark moments. Those principles, which can help guide us, they can seem stark on paper, but can be messy when you're bringing them to the bedside. And so as you're ushering your patients, your families, even your own friends and family members through this, and you're talking about these ideas, one question that I think is helpful to help tease out in a given situation what to do is to ask, will life support in a given scenario constitute preservation of life, which is us upholding the sanctity of life, or prolongation of death and undue suffering? And a question to focus on to try to help unpack that is, is the underlying illness treatable? So when someone's in the ICU and suffering and there's a question of, are we helping or are we hurting? Asking, is the underlying illness treatable? And it's really crucial to impress upon families, especially lay people, is that life-sustaining measures are supportive, not curative. This is something that I think a lot of people don't understand when they're interfacing with the intensive care unit for the first time. And they say, well, of course I want a ventilator because I want to provide treatment. But it's really important to understand that a ventilator will not cure. It supports until we can find a cure for the underlying illness. 
What do I mean by that? The real question is, can the threat to life be reversed? In the case of a ventilator, which is used obviously to support the lungs and the respiratory system, in the case of respiratory failure, you have very different scenarios. If someone is 40 years old, has no past medical history, and comes with respiratory failure due to a community-acquired pneumonia that we can treat easily with antibiotics, a ventilator in that case is going to be life-saving. The most expected outcome is that they will be on a ventilator for maybe 48 hours, the antibiotics will do their work to eradicate their pneumonia, their ventilation and oxygenation will improve, they'll extubate and they'll go home. However, the situation is very different if we're talking about someone who's a nonagenarian, for example, who has end-stage COPD refractory to all of our treatments and struggles with repeated hospitalizations for hypercarbia, who also has metastatic lung cancer that's been refractory to chemotherapy and radiation, who presents with a fungal pneumonia, which is much harder to treat. In that situation, a ventilator can keep the oxygenation and, resp and respirations going for a while, but if we cannot reverse the underlying cause of respiratory failure, that ventilator is only going to prolong death. And so I think this is something that a lot of lay people struggle with and don't understand. And so helping people to, under, to come to the determination that the real question is whether or not we have a treatment for the underlying illness that's threatening life is the key to figure out if these measures are going to prolong death and suffering or promise recovery. I'm gonna go through now just some tips for those of you who are working in the clinical realm about having a family meeting. So I'm envisioning here through my own experience, having a family come to the ICU to have these heavy discussions about a loved one um, who's struggling and fighting for life and is at the end of life. However, my hope though, is that the process of this, even if you're not in clinical work might help you um, when discussing things for your own families. The first thing I would say is that when you have a family that comes into the room and they're encircled by a group of people in white coats, it's incredibly intimidating. So you want to create an environment where they feel at ease. And so introduce everyone who's there at the meeting. Uh, and don't forget chaplaincy, please. Like before you actually meet with families, try to gauge and ask, would you like a chaplain here? Is there a pastor you trust who can come and join us? And make sure that you're addressing that spiritual support upfront. And then what I would recommend is that you begin with listening. I think the number one error that doctors can make in these situations is to vomit information at people. And then we act surprised when the meeting doesn't go well. And so our goal, our goal is not just to inform, it's to guide. And to guide someone, you need to first come alongside them and understand where they are in this whole process of understanding and coming to some acceptance and making a decision about a loved one. So the first question that I would ask actually when I would begin these meetings is not to give a bunch of information, but to ask, what is your understanding about your loved one's situation? I think this is a very helpful question because before you even get into the nitty gritty of medical terminology, it gives you a chance to see, are they in a position to talk about all this or do we need to really back up and try to help them explain what's happened to this point? I had one family that was angry about things that had happened in a prior hospitalization before their loved one even entered our ICU. And until we addressed that anger, 
we made no headway whatsoever on trying to come to a consensus about care. Uh, other responses, you might actually get a response from a loved one to say, I'm really worried about everything we're doing. My loved one has been concerned about um, a, an aggressive approach to care at this stage in life, and I wanna make sure we're not incurring more suffering. On the opposite side, you could have family members who say, well, I know he's sick, but you're gonna get him better when you're looking at someone who's actually on the verge of death. And so it's really important first to say, have them explain in their own words what they think is going on and what their expectations are. The next question, because once we hear this, we can be tempted to jump in and try to correct misunderstandings and misinterpretations, hold off. And I would recommend actually following up with, tell us about your loved one. If we're in the intensive care unit, chances are we know very little about the person who's under our care. We might know about their vital signs and their lab values and their medical history and their medications and whether their vasopressors are going up and down, but we know nothing about where they grew up, what was hard for them, what challenges they faced. And so we don't really know the person. And I think it's important to come alongside families and show that that matters and that you know that while it's numbers to us, it's a person that the people in the room are grieving. And so I will say, you know, you have the benefit of knowing this person and what he loves and, and what drives him, which can also give an indication of how he might answer in these situations with making medical decisions. And I'll say, what matters to him? Tell us about the kind of person he is. And then the last question I always ask before I start leaping into any kind of explanation is coming to this meeting today, what is your greatest concern, which can be revealing and also show that you care that, that, you're, you care about their involvement in this process and you wanna make sure that you are ministering to them just as you're caring for the patient. And this is important, I think these questions too, because faith flags, as is used in the CMDA faith prescriptions program, can arise during these opening discussions where people might mention, I'm just praying for a miracle. You can then inquire about that. How is your faith informing this? Okay, so start with listening, not with talking. After that point, once you've opened this meeting, it's helpful then to try to paint the clinical picture and try to work with family members to determine would measures in this case be life-saving life or death-prolonging? Questions that you can go through with the families to help them understand this is what is the condition threatening life and why is it life-threatening? Can the available treatments bring about cure? What's the likelihood for recovery? How does the patient's previous medical conditions influence his or her likely for recovery? And that's important because sometimes people come in and they think about just the one problem that's at play in the moment and think about fixing that one problem and they fail to realize that there's a whole host of history of debilitation and organ dysfunction leading up to this point. And so one person's ability to overcome an acute illness is not the same as another's. What it, will the available treatments worsen suffering with little chance of benefit? And what are the best and worst expected outcomes? Now, very often when we're talking about these topics too, it's not quite so black and white of recovery versus death and it's more a middle ground where you have incomplete recovery with disability. And this is when it's really important to help find the voice of the person in the bed and to honor them as an image bearer and to recognize that what is suffering for me is not the same as it will be for someone else. And then the question that's key is if he could speak for himself, what would he say about this situation? Sometimes families won't know. And then it's helpful to try to unpack it for them, try to get to the root of what, what was this person's 
approach to illness, what matters to him, what does he need to feel like he's walking with the Lord, We're talking again about people who follow Christ. And so the questions to ask is what matters most to your loved one, what drives him in life? What comments has he made in the past regarding end of life care, if any? What are his goals, both in the short term and for his life in general? And what is he willing to endure to achieve those goals? And this can be entirely subjective and unique. I had one patient who was enduring months of intensive care and was um, quite sick. And we were worried, were we doing more harm than good? And when we sat down with her, she was willing to endure everything as long as she could sit with her family and watch TV. And that was enough meaning for her. And additionally, you can have people who will say, you know, I just want to be able to read the Bible. I just want to be able to take the sacrament. Um, what is it that they are willing to endure to meet their goals in terms of walking with the Lord and, and um, what is not, what is too much an undue suffering? And then how well in the past has my loved one tolerated pain, dependence, disability, and fear? This can be very helpful if your patient has been in and out of the hospital in the past, just to ask, how do they deal with this? What comments were they saying about their hospitalizations? And it can give you a sense when a loved one isn't sure. So for the case that I presented in the beginning, we took this approach and sat down with both the mother and the son and outlined and said that, yes, we're called to protect life, but also death comes to all of us and we need to make sure we're not uh, incurring suffering needlessly. And so we walked through it with him through the facts that his father was in the end stages of multiple chronic diseases with organ failure. And it was a very low likelihood that he would wean from the ventilator because he had, was so debilitated at baseline. And so in this case, a ventilator would likely prolong dying and cause undue suffering. And so a gospel-centered approach directed us to honor the wishes that he had stated in the past. And so we continue with comfort measures only. Quickly, because we're running out of time, I think it should be obvious that the best times to have these conversations are not at the bedside, not in the conference room, but before catastrophe strikes. Advanced care planning has tremendous potential to alleviate the burden on us and on our loved ones and on those in our care. And we've this has actually played out in research. When we talk with our loved ones and document our wishes, we have protection against treatment that contradicts our values. It offers guidance to, to physicians and caregivers when death nears, increases the likelihood of death in a preferred location, especially for those who wish to die at home, prevents futile and aggressive treatment that prolongs dying, and is associated with less depression, anxiety, and stress among loved ones. And so while nobody likes to talk about death, when we bring these conversations up with our patients ahead of time, and in our own lives with our family members, it can alleviate a lot of the turmoil that patients endure and also make sure that our uh, values are being upheld. And when you think about it, actually, for those of us who are disciples, it's a way actually to share our faith and the hope that we have and the trust we have in Christ if we place these things in writing and share them ahead of time. There are two flavors of advanced directives. Living wills offer narrative exposition of our wishes. Uh, then there's the physician order for life-sustaining treatment, which is the DNR, DNI form, the checkbox form. Uh, in general, post forms are very helpful for those who are terminally ill in hospice to ensure that they're not brought to the hospital and not given CPR against their wishes. And in fact, in that situation, the form should be up in a place that's easy to identify so that when paramedics come to the house, 
they're not giving treatment that is uh, burdensome and inappropriate. However, for most other people, a living will can be more appropriate because it allows you to write out what conditions would you be okay having a ventilator and what not. This is helpful because a lot of people who say, I don't want a ventilator under any circumstances and check that box, usually mean they don't want to be dependent on a ventilator long-term, not necessarily that they would be unwilling to have it for a short period of time if they could go home. So a living will lets you include that kind of language and say, I would be okay with XYZ measure, presuming I can, there's a reasonable chance that I can recover in my doctor's opinion, et cetera. Uh, a couple organizations to turn to is the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, which has advanced directive forms for every state in the US and the Five Wishes Program, which offers a packet to help patients and families go through what their wishes are. And I really would recommend that these directives be put together with a doctor involved so that that doctor can explain the ins and outs of the different technologies and also what your own medical conditions uh, mean for end of life care and how it influences your likelihood of being able to recover. Uh, with a pastor, so you're sure that it's in line with your values as a Christian, and that you share this with those you love. You appoint a healthcare proxy if possible, but at minimum, you discuss it with the people around you so that you're not leaving them adrift when they're having to make decisions on your behalf. My concluding thoughts on this would just be that as heavy as this topic is, and as difficult as these scenarios are, in the midst of sorrow, we can still cling to our hope in Christ. For the Christian, we have peace and discernment knowing that the end of life is an end, but it is not the end. And for the non-Christian, when as clinicians we have these discussions, it actually can open up windows to share the gospel and to share the hope and assurance we have. And I think it's helpful during these murky, dark scenarios to remember that Jesus will return, that our hope is in him. And from Revelation, when he comes back, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death or mourning, no more crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Butler. Um, we have some time now. I know I have a number of questions I could ask, but we want to give priority to you, our participants, to ask Dr. Butler questions. Um, just to remind you, you do that by clicking on the reactions button, the one that has the smiley face at the bottom right of your Zoom screen, and then click on the raised hand. And when I acknowledge you, well, I'll ask you to turn your, your video on. So we'll begin with Michelle Skipper. Uh, can you uh, maybe turn your, there you go, and unmute. Great. Hello. Um, and thank you for this presentation. I'm a, a nurse practitioner and went through everything you're describing with my late husband a few years ago, who was United Methodist clergy. And so we had every possible resource that Durham Regional and chaplains and all the all you all can um, uh, could give to us. But could you speak specifically to when a family goes through this journey and the person making decisions is a healthcare practitioner. What's your advice when you're trying to be a wife versus being a clinician who has some different knowledge about what your loved one is going through? Mm -hmm. Thank you. From, from your experience, Michelle, I'm gauging that 
those two roles were hard. Um, yeah, yeah, I can understand. You know, it's interesting. I, I can understand the tension there too, and I can't presume to know what you endured, but um, I've been in similar situations for loved ones too, and the burden feels heavier because you feel like I, I, I know what's, I know much more here, and I know what's coming. You know, um, I don't know if this is helpful at all. You know, but I would say it's still see that the knowledge subset you have is a gift because you can actually help your loved one to understand the situation in ways that a layperson couldn't. Um, but to also make sure that you have your own support to grieve because we can feel so responsible, you know, that we need to make sure the right thing is done because we know all the background and we want to advocate for your loved one. But in a system that's as fragmented as our medical system is, sometimes you just can't, you know, so I don't know if I'm addressing your question well, but I would just say I can, I can empathize with the conflict uh, and say that it's important to see yourself as a guide who can try to help interpret the situation for a loved one and guide them and try to ensure that you're upholding their wishes and make sure also though that you have a support system and that you're able to go through the process of grieving for yourself and not take it all upon yourself as being the one to solve the problem. Okay, um, I think we had a hand raised by Varun Goel. Varun, are you still on? I don't see you now. Well, I'm, I'm going to, before we turn to Daniel O'Neill, I'm going to ask a question that was put in the chat. Um, Dr. Butler, um, that is, why is active euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide not also reasonably seen as extending mercy. I mean, use that term mercy. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I am, as you know, going to be shortly uh, testifying before a legislature about this. And I've already heard repeatedly that mm -hmm. mercy is uh, what should lead us to recognize the need for assisted suicide, yeah. um, free someone from their persistent suffering. Um, so from a Christian perspective, how do you draw the line between the kind of mercy that you're talking about and with withholding or withdrawing life-sustaining treatments mm -hmm. and assisted suicide? Yeah, I, th I think the key concern is intent. Um, so when we place someone on comfort measures, what we're doing is we're saying we're not going to we're not going to give measures that are going to cause and worsen suffering. And what takes the life of the patient is the underlying process. If someone, and this happens, if we place someone on comfort measures and say, we're not going to be aggressive and they survive, we don't actively take life. And I think that's the key difference is that in active euthanasia, yes, there's an underlying terminal illness, but it is the medication that we give that actually facilitates death, not the underlying illness. We're speeding death intentionally. And the intention is to end that patient's life. It might be out of compassion that we do it. But to me, you know, I, I think about um, the terminology that she just mentioned, you know, far in terms of mercy. And what I've seen over time, which I'm sure you have too, is that there's a shift in the terminology to soften the language so that it's more acceptable. You know, so even the term physician assisted suicide, people say, oh, no, no, it's medical aid in dying. 
you know, but you as a palliative care practitioner and we, we give medical aid in dying all the time to people who are dying and give them, you know, medications to make them comfortable. That's not the same thing as actively giving them a medication to end their life prematurely. And I think in trying to couch these topics in language like mercy and compassion, we're softening what this actually is. And so while I'm in favor, absolutely, of showing not giving treatments that are going to cause suffering when death is already imminent um, and it's futile, it's not biblical to shorten life intentionally um, and call it mercy. Would you agree? Uh, you know I agree. Um, <laughs> uh, let's turn to Daniel O'Neill. Uh, Daniel, can you unmute? And you can turn your video on if you'd like. Oh, I'm sorry. I think I had to ask you to unmute. There we go. Go ahead. Okay. okay. Thank you very much, Dr. Butler. Um, I, I had a case a couple of weeks ago. I was hospitalist that the patient had a uh, multi-system organ disease and, and, and was, I think in her nineties, the, the two sons uh, were contacted because she looked like she was going to die and she was on the medical surgical unit. And I had to, it seemed to me as if the, that she was going to die and that I, um, I wanted to get their permission because she, she was unable to express her permission um, to have a DNR status and not to be aggressive. Um, but the, the sons, um, you know, um, I think had various different motivations for their desire not to do anything, as they said, do anything you can for as long as you can. And the son came in afterwards and, and was dismayed as we were putting her on a ventilator, um, and then said, let's just stop this. Um, so, how do you deal with uh, families who who change what you think might be a reasonable approach to an individual patient be, because of sentimentality or because of other motives uh, yeah. when they they are the uh, healthcare uh, designation uh, designates? Yeah, that you know, that's so hard, and it tugged in my heart when you described it because I've seen the same same thing. I, I think if it really comes down to there's a concern that the patient is not receiving the care that is most appropriate and you're really worried for um, his or her welfare, I think an ethics committee is appropriate to get involved if there's really a lot of disagreement between family members or if you're concerned that you're pursuing care to the point where it's uh, cruelty and it's in the face of futility. Um, so do you have, an, I'm not sure if you have an ethics committee involved, but I find that they're very helpful in those kinds of situations. Um, let me add a question myself here. And again, if anybody else has a question, please, uh, indicate so by raising your hand. Um, but my question is Dr. Butler, you use the term shepherding. So how would you respond to the, the, uh, response to the critique, um, that someone would say, look, I'm not a sheep. And this is offensive to think that you're talking about looking for faith flags. You're talking about um, you know, potentially sharing the good news of, of what you call the gospel of Jesus Christ and so on. Why do you consider this to be the kind of interactions with patients that are permissible given your particular role as a physician? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, first of all, I think 
it's key to acknowledge that if someone is very not obviously not asking, not open, we respect their perspective. Our, our role first and foremost is to um, support our patients through the trauma of illness and to try to help bring them back home and to offer healing. For those, however, who are struggling with spiritual issues, I do think that the work we do for those of us who follow Christ is caught up in ministry. And so there is tremendous good that can be had when you have a medical background and you also have an understanding of theology and some biblical principles to help guide people who are struggling with these questions uh, through them, because you've got an understanding of both perspectives. And so while I would never say it's appropriate to impose your beliefs in a situation of turmoil, for those who are showing that they're open to prayer, are open to asking about these questions of faith, I think to love neighbor, um, it's appropriate. Thank you. I think we're going to take one more question from uh, Joan Oliver. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. Um, thank you for the wonderful presentation, Catherine. Thank you. So as you had mentioned, death has been blinded um, over the last, well, last century or more, and most patients uh, die in institutions and not in the home surrounded by loved ones. As an observation, I find it interesting that families want their young, want, young children in on the birth of a new family member, or they want them involved in the creation, right, of a, a sibling. But sometimes these are the same parents that do not want their children to see a dead family member laid out in the funeral home. Mm -hmm. um, so again, they're okay with seeing creation, but shield the children from death. And my other, my question is, do you think um, society that in general, if death wasn't as shielded as it is now, would we have more compassion for each other and more, um, I guess, more um, gratefulness for life? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Joan. Um, I'll, yeah, why don't you take that as the final question, Dr. Butler, and I'll just say that what, what Joan mentioned is a phenomenon I see very frequently in hospice care, which is people do not want their children to see the ones who are dying. What are your thoughts on that? Have you, I was wondering, Joan, if you've actually ever read Matthew McCullough's book, Remember Death, uh, and he talks about that, and he speaks about the fact that because we've pushed death so far from our mindset, um, that yes, that we are ungrateful in the day-to-day, -day, that we forget God's goodness and his work in our lives, that it's easy not to remember the gospel for those of us who follow Christ. So I would agree with you. Um, and you know, for those of us who are trying to also raise our kids to know the Lord, I think being open about death is, is important right. um, because it also gives us a chance to talk with them about that that tension, that it's sad and that it's appropriate to mourn, uh, but that we also know, you know, that we have this hope. And so I had a friend that was very dear to me, um, if I'll remember this from the book, who died from uh, COPD. And my kids accompanied me to visits to the hospital with them all the time. And I think that actually helped them 
to process everything was having seen him and known him when he was well and see that it was that same person, but to see him decline. And we, it brought up discussions that I think actually helped in their healing and processing of the grief thereafter. So I am, I am absolutely in agreement with what you're saying. Yeah. And, I have um, not read the book um, mm -hmm. recently, just last week put my mother on hospice so yeah. or you might see her in um in the notes at um duke hospice but i have my son actively involved in caring for her in my house he comes over a couple of days a week while i'm up here in my office working but um i have not read the book um the book we're talking about but um well i'm gonna i'm just gonna pick up there you guys in recognizing we've come to the end of the hour and say do read the book, um, uh, for, and that's to everyone. Um, I, I'm, I, I know there's a, at least one more question, but we're going to need to close here. Um, Dr. Butler, you want to lift up those books one more time? So folks can see them. And the, the book I was mentioning about Remember Death is by Matthew McCullough, um, and he talks about the importance of bringing death back to our consciousness, but these are the, the two books. It's Between Life and Death and Glimmers of Grace talking about these issues. Um, thank you. Thank you, Katie. It's, this is a real pleasure uh, for all of us mortal creatures that are gathered on this Zoom call um, to be reminded of um, our own mortality and to be given these really helpful tools to, to accompany those who are dying.